notes here on my phone. I also think very interesting. So it's an important and interesting subject, and also very central uh, to Jewish life. And that is the Shema. Now, when I say the word Shema, everyone's like, okay, I know what you're talking about. I've been there. I've done it before. I'm Jewish. I've, I've known this sentence and this paragraph for years. And you know what? I think before I did research on this subject, I would have been like everyone else, you know? Uh, the Shema, everyone knows the Shema. Everyone knows what it means, basically, and everyone kind of has an understanding uh, about what we're talking about. Uh, but when I did research, I found so many fascinating, like, global insights, uh, global is in, is in, is in the Jewish worldview uh, from the Shema, that to me it was, it was just fascinating. Uh, because we look at the Shema as being sort of like a declaration or a pledge of allegiance for what we mean, what, what we mean when we say Jewish. What do we believe in? What do we espouse? What do we hold uh, uh, the most dear? And what is the, the tenets? What's the Jewish doctrine? What's that all about? You know, what's our contribution to the world? What's our mission statement to the world? That is all detailed in the Shema. So in, in a way, like if you wanted to have a highly concentrated uh, a synthesis of Jewish <laughs> of Jewish philosophy. Yeah, here's one. Like if you wanted to have, let's say, the, the one pill, you know, like to have today, you want to just put everything, give me, give me all my nutrition in one. Um, I, I want the, uh, uh, I want to go on the diet, the lemon diet, what are they called? <laughs> what, what's that called? The uh, cleanse, oh. right? All I want, I want everything concentrated into one little lemonade drink, right? If you wanted that for Judaism, you would go to the Shema. Um, and we know it's, it's so central to, to Jewish life. It's so part of the mystique uh, of Judaism that it's, we, it's the first thing we teach our kids. And it's the thing that we traditionally say before we die. You know, there's a, it's, it's not fun to talk about, but we're all going to die here. Um, not here, I'm saying. All of us sitting here. <laughs> Resale value. You, me- you mentioned the formaldehyde. Who knows, right? <laughs> uh, but all of us, that's the human condition. It's the... Uh, uh, you know, life is this is this disease that we all end up dying from. It's depressing, but uh, in Judaism, every little bit of life and and the process and you know the the uh, the ups and downs uh, of of the cycles of life is is touched upon by by Jewish meaning, by purpose, by prayer, by liturgy, by philosophy. And there's, if you go to the book, you'll, in the book of Jewish liturgy, you'll find what do you say when you're about to die. I don't know, my grandfather was a very influential rabbi in Israel. And he had a student who, um, he had a student who was privy to a horrible car accident. And he was just standing there and he just sees this accident and he, he's sure you know, everyone's dying. They're, they're di- if they're not dead, they're dying. And he was just frozen in place. So my grandfather went out, asked him. He was in, he was obviously shaken up by this episode. He came to talk to my grandfather. I asked him, well, did you go and say vidui with the people that were dying? So what's vidui? Vidui means the confession. It's a confession that we say on Yom Kippur. But it's also, there's a special prayer that we say right before you're about to die. And my, my, my grandfather, it, in, his, in his worldview, when you see someone tragically, obviously, he's dying in front of you, you got to make sure that you infuse this with, 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 with vitality, with spiritual vitality, by saying the vidui. So to me, like, and, he, and he's like, the guy's like, whoa, who, I don't have a book with me, a book of Jewish liturgy. Like, who knows the vidui? I don't even know the vidui, but you supposed to say it before you die by heart. Anybody knows? You know? So how, how can you 
how can you tell me, you know, Rabbi Wolby Sr., how can you tell me that I have to go over to someone who's about to die and say the video with him? I don't know if I who knows about it. Nobody knows it by heart. You know, we all bad Jews. Um, so he says, like, you know what, learn it by heart. What if you say it prematurely? Well, not, yet, not the end of the world. You put one reserve in each? No. Isn't that kind of... No, it's, uh, it's, I, it's, it's a prayer. Good to see you. Uh, it's a prayer, and it's, uh, it's, it's a good thing, uh, as we know. Um, we, you know we're, this is the season of, of the high holidays, so we're about to approach the high holidays. Rosh in a couple of weeks. And we look, if you guys want to examine the liturgy, the prayer, the philosophy, the themes of Rosh Hashanah, you'll see a lot about this discussion of life and death. And uh, to answer your question, who will, then, live, and who will, die? Huh? Who will live and who will die, right? That's, what, that's one of the, the, you know, the, the high points of the prayers. Who's going to live and who's going to die? And how are they going to die? And all the details and gory details, right? right? And we do that, and the question is, that's not inspiring, <laughs> is it? It's, it's not, but actually it kind of is. Because if you actually are thinking about your own demise, you'll live your life in a different way. The realization of the fact that we're not here forever makes us want to make the most out of our time here. So yes, it's not exciting to think about it, but it actually is very inspiring. So uh, uh, this great tragedy that was averted by someone not dying and saying the prayer uh, of the vidui uh, for naught. Well, that's actually not so bad at the end of the world because, okay, you didn't die. It's not, it's not so bad. <laughs> um, and, uh, wow, there's another great, I'm getting so off topic here. <laughs> there's another great, uh, there's a great episode about this really, really religious guy. Very religious. And we know when you say a blessing, we say a blessing on the water, right? You make a bracha. And then you have to drink it right away. That, that's the law. You have to drink it right away. That's why if anyone... Well, especially, especially when there's a bracha. It's linked, you want to do the bracha right before the, uh, the, from the hamotzi. Has anyone here ever seen someone cut a little bit of the hamotzi before they make the blessing? Has anyone ever seen that? Before they make it? Have you seen it? No? Okay, there's this, there's this ubiquitous uh, custom where you're about to make the hamotzi Friday night or Saturday or anytime really. You take, a, take the knife, you cut a little bit before you make the bracha. Before you make the blessing, well, why would you do that? It's like, uh, you know, you're defiling the bread before you even before before you even begin. Because isn't the hamotzi you leave a part off? Well, not only that, you haven't made the hamotzi yet. You're about to make the hamotzi. Before you make the hamotzi, you start cutting as you know you you start, so you cutting, start cutting. You're not talking about right. So you have the breads, off. you take the knife, you give a little, you know, you cut a little bit, and then and then you make the hamotzi. The reason why is because uh, in Jewish law. You want to expedite the blessing to the actualization of what the blessing is trying to bring about. Thus, if the blessing is a blessing, let's go make hamotzi and eat bread. You want to make the blessing and you eat the bread right away. And therefore, how do you make it faster? Well, you start the cutting already earlier. As if you, you know, thank God they don't do that for, circum- for circumcisions. Oh, bad. <laughs> thank God. Uh, but either way, uh, we have to expunge that from the public record. Uh, Either way, so that's this. So there was this really religious guy, um, and he uh, he was uh, walking. This is not a true story, by the way. Uh, he was walking through uh, uh, through um, a Damascus Gate towards the Koto. Right? And we know Damascus Gate not the safest way to go. Uh, maybe you should go through Jaffa Gate. There's other ways to go. It's full of Arabs. Anyhow, he was walking in the middle of the night by himself, 
you know, little Arabs that are hostile to, to Jews who look really Jewish. Oh, you're allowed to go through that gate. No, it you can't. It's very dangerous. I'd let you go through my gate. No, it's, it's, it's very dangerous. Well, there's seven gates. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, but that, that is a very, very dangerous place to go. Just, yeah, I'm not trying to be, uh, you know, bigoted. It's just, it's a good idea to avoid. This guy says I'm going. Anyhow, so this, so this Arab guy comes and pulls a knife at him. So he says, stop! And he says to the Arab guy, he says, wait one second. And he starts saying out loud, vidui. And he says, and he finishes it. The guy, the Arab gets so frustrated, like flustered with what he starts running away. He's like, no, no, no. It's like, that's a joke. That's a joke. He's like, why are you waiting? I made the blessing. No. Okay, that's the joke. No, uh, no. Like, you're supposed to say no, no, because you know you can't make an interruption between. Anyhow, um, fun of stories. But either way, the Shema is uh, at the center of kind of Jewish life. It's the first thing you say in the morning. It's the last thing you say at night. First thing we teach a child. Last thing we say as we exit the world. Why? Because it is what we are. It is the declaration of Judaism. It's what we believe in. It's what makes us special. It's what we are contributing to the world. Um, I told a, a great story I was, that uh, I'll repeat. I hope everyone who heard it. Were you there two weeks ago? Which one? By uh, Israel's house. So, uh, LFC, okay, so I'll tell the story over again. We won't spoil your punchline. What was the punchline? Yeah, what was the story? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, in, uh, in 2006, in 2006, there was a war in Lebanon. So, there was a war in southern Lebanon between Israel and Hezbollah. Hezbollah is this uh, organization that is hell-bent on the destruction of Israel, and they kidnapped a bunch of soldiers, and then they sent rockets into Israel, uh, and it, they began a 34-day war in July of 2006. And there was this one episode that uh, kind of galvanized the nation. I said it fast. If, you heard, if you've heard the story before, it's because I said it two weeks ago. Uh, so there's this um, uh, commander, the soldier, uh, he was a reserve soldier, he was a, a family, he was an American family, his name was Klein, Roe Klein. And he was leading a bunch of soldiers into this you know, very uh, hotly contested um, battle site. Uh, and they were uh, like in a narrow alleyway with walls on both sides. And then suddenly out of the blue, there's this, uh, from the other side, a... A live grenade comes, and it's right there. And this guy, Roy Klein, 31-year-old father of two, I think, he jumps on the grenade and screams on top of his lungs, Shema Yisrael, Hashem, 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 and it, it explodes, and he saves his guys. That was the story. And um, this, this, this episode, obviously, you know, in time of war, it's always a time of unity. You know, and the, in Israel, it's a bunch of Jews, you know? Two, two Jews, three opinions. Imagine... Six million Jews, you know. That's what it's, it's like. And it's unfortunate, but that's the reality. And that's the way it is. And, you know, they find a way to make it work. But in times of war, all that is suspended. There's an incredible amount of unity and everyone's trying to contribute. And everyone, it's a very, very positive, uh, you know, atmosphere with regards to uh, the nation coming together. Uh, this one story was such a, such a pivotal, such, a, such an amazing 
just episode that just you know woke everyone up. It was like this remarkable wake up call that the nation had. Um, you know, this young, really like put together, handsome like, kind of picture, perfect guy, and what he do, what he did for you know for his for his soldiers, and then how he kind of went down in the flames of martyrdom by screaming on top of his lunch You can watch videos, by the way, on YouTube, like I have. I did this. You can watch videos of his soldiers were interviewed afterwards and the kind of, the talking about this episode is pretty remarkable. Uh, either way, so um, uh, the story, uh, the, the postscript to the story is that uh, a friend of mine, actually, I said last time was a friend of mine, it's actually one of my brothers. He was so taken by the story that he said, okay, we're going to make a lasting monument for this story. So he said, we're going to go and we're going to go and we're going to find a mountain <laughs> on the outskirts of Jerusalem and we're going to paint the biggest sign Jerusalem has ever seen of Shema Yisrael. And uh, it was the middle of the night, it was 2.30 in the morning, two days after this episode happened. So I, I, I Googled it, by the way. It was July 26th, 2006, so a little more than nine years ago. Uh, by the way, this Roe Klein was awarded the highest uh, honor. Um, that, uh, the, what, the Medal of Valor? Second highest. What's the highest? Gvura is the highest in Adam And what's, what, did he get, what did he get? Mofet. Mofet. Okay, so... Uh, Still a pretty high end career. <laughs> well, uh, the yeah, article that I saw said it was the highest. I guess there's something even higher. Second, yeah. But it, it, apparently it said like it, it, this was not awarded in 40 years. This is a really big deal. Um, and so we, we drove to a mountain on the outskirts of Jerusalem called Har HaMenuchot, which is the, uh, the place where they bury the graves of Israel's biggest grave sites, a mountain full of, gra- full of graves. Um, and so if you look at the mountain, it's like a white mountain because there's no trees, the neuter of all the trees and all the, you know, all the Jerusalem stone, all the gravestones are all white. So you look, it's like, it looks like they're at a place, like just a white mountain full of probably at least a million graves. Uh, either way, we, we drove the middle of the night. Uh, we took a paint, buckets and buckets of paint and ladders and whatnot, uh, paintbrushes. And by the way, I'm not, this is why this one was 19. Don't judge me, okay? Did you uh, which brother was this? And none of them, none of them, you know. And we found this great spot. Uh, there was this, I think it was like the sign for us because the entire side of the mountain, facade of the mountain, has this really nice stone. It's like kind of this stone, you know? You see like, you know, that little stone pattern on top of the fireplace? Mm-hmm. Like that in the Jerusalem. And then there's this one empty, like just empty concrete uh, because it's, you know, tiered. The mountain's tiered. So there's, there's a bunch of graves and there's another tier and then it's all concrete inside. And we find this massive, like empty block of con- concrete. And and on, on, on the bottom, there's this, this metal... Awning on top of a bunch of graves. Very bizarre because there's no metal anywhere in the entire, entire, entire mountain. And there's this metal overhang on a bunch of graves. So we climb on top of that and then we, we, we make these, these massive letters. Shmai Yisrael. It's only, I guess, what, eight letters. But we made like 12-foot letters. And it's on the outskirts of Jerusalem. But if you're driving into Jerusalem, you see this mountain because Jerusalem is surrounded by mountains. And... Every day, there's hundreds of thousands of people, motorists, driving into Jerusalem. This is the main entrance to Jerusalem. And we built this massive sign, Shema Yisrael. I, I don't know why we did it. This is actually, <laughs> in retrospect, uh, is an act of vandalism, I guess. Um, I guess at that time, it made a lot of sense. 
Uh, but either there? way, it was, huh? Steve there? So, no. So, unfortunately, <laughs> it was up for years. And every time I would go in and out of Jerusalem, you, you just see it like this. It's right in front of you, even though it's miles and miles away. Because it's so, it's so enormous. Like Hollywood, right? Yeah, like the Hollywood side. <laughs> <laughs> Jerusalem equivalent. <laughs> um, and it was there. And we, we kind of did it. I guess it was a monument to this, to this soldier and to... The environment, you know, the atmosphere that he engendered, but it's really it's it's a rallying cry of the Jewish people, and you know. What was the public opinion of that over there? Oh, I, I don't know. We did it all night. That we at least there was a guard at the entrance of the of the facility, and he's like, "Why do you have a ladder?" <laughs> so we said, "Oh, we just finished doing some construction work in our house. It's two thirty in the morning." Um, so you lie and you're lie. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, please don't judge me. <laughs> we might have done work beforehand just to uh, create this opportunity for a fair cover-up. Either way, um, oh, so several years later. No, 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 no. So several years later, um, I was once going into Jerusalem, and I saw that someone had taken. We did it with white paint. Someone had taken white paint and just covered the entire site, which is. It was hundreds of square feet of space. I don't know. I guess someone was so disturbed by it that they figured it's better to have nothing there, just like a white blob. blob. Doing blue over it. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> Just go back there. <laughs> it, it was pretty crazy because I remember like the last letter, because I was the tallest guy there, and the last letter. So um, we, you know, if you're painting over, I don't know, you have, you have to kind of estimate how much room you need, right? Um, so you're doing eight letters, but you don't. Well, we should have done probably the first and then the last, and then work towards the middle. Right. So the lamin was the last letter, and we started from the first letter. So the shin was a little big, and then it's not as tall. But the lamin was really all the way at the edge of this middle because the middle is like eight feet in the air, and there's a six foot, a six foot ladder on top of it, and then there's me. Fully stretched out, all the way at the edge, and trying to re- make that llama. Uh, crazy. <laughs> uh, huh? Dedication. Yeah, so it's pretty crazy. I, like, I kind of fall, like, you fall down, and there's rocks there. It's the graves. Either way, uh, that's the story. <laughs> yeah, you don't need everybody. <laughs> um, so, um, but that's Shema Yisrael. Uh, Shema Yisrael is, you know, the, the heart and soul of the Jewish people. Um, there's another great story um, kind of illustrate this point um, in during after, after 1945 so the war is over um, Jews are liberated from all the camps um, in the aftermath of the war uh, like in a few days afterwards um, uh, many hundreds of thousands I don't know many hundreds but at least tens of thousands of Jews even died after, after liberation I know my, uh, my wife's grandmother just passed away uh, a couple months ago, uh, she had a sister that survived the whole war. You know, she survived Berger Melson. She did it, and then three days after after, after they were liberated, she died. She died of uh, tuberculosis, um, which is insane. Um, like such a tragedy, you don't even know what to say. Uh, but either way, there was um, also um, a reality where there were a lot of Jewish children that were given to monasteries, and the parents, you know, I, you know, it's a Decision that you hope to never make. You have a small child, and you have the option of maybe giving them over to someone 
then maybe they'll survive, obviously with the hopes that they survive, but then you're going into, who knows what's going to happen, who knows what they'll remember. Either way, so there's one rabbi from, rabbi from Cincinnati, Rabbi Silver, who undertook this mission to try to go <coughs> all across Europe um, to try to collect as many of these Jewish kids as he can. Uh, and you can read about it. There's a lot of books written about it. Very interesting. He was actually uh, some officer, a sergeant in the army, so he brought with him a bunch of like big marines guys. So he was out of, he, that's how he got he gave admission to all these places. But he walks into all these places, and he, they tell him, oh, no Jewish kids here. Or maybe they were, but who knows? They got all mixed up. There's a bunch of orphans. We don't know who's who. They were so young. It was years and years and years ago. So he would say, okay, I want to come back at, at, during, during, uh, you know, during the time where all the kids are going to sleep. And he comes back at 7, 7.30. All the kids are in their beds. And he walks up and down screaming Shema Yisrael. And then all the kids who suddenly like wake up and like start calling for their mommies and covering their eyes, those are the Jewish kids in prison. Now, um, that's a very, you know, the same, I don't know how many kids he actually um, extracted, but that's kind of also in, indicative of what, what this actually means for a nation. It's the, kind of the one thing that we never lose. It's the thing that's instilled within us or the motto uh, that's instilled within us from such a young age and we kind of take it with us and we associate it with, with, with our parents and with our heritage and with this ongoing tradition that hasn't been broken. You know, the, the words Shmai Yisrael, where do they come from? Who, anyone knows where they come from? Where do they come from? Who made them up? Why did you start with our prayer? Because they took Tasha. Where did the come from? That's right, it comes from Deuteronomy. <laughs> this is really, really old. This is as old as the Jewish people uh, themselves. Um, the Three chapters, three paragraphs of, of the Shema, uh, starting obviously with the famous sentence of Shema Yisrael, the six words of Shema Yisrael, they are parts of the Torah. And part of those uh, portions of the Torah say, read this in the morning and at night, when, you, when you're on your way, when you're, you know, when you're, uh, when you're, when you're sitting up, when you're standing, when you're standing down, when you're going to sleep, when you're... Uh, traveling, right? It tells you to read it, so that's okay, where it starts so, from. So reference. Yes, that's right. That's right. So, when, when did it start with our prayer? Well, that's a good question because the prayer itself, yeah, it's prayer itself wasn't necessarily formalized uh, for many, many years after. This is a good question. Ezra, or? Uh, well, Ezra and the men of the Great Assembly. So Ezra was the founding leader of the Great Assembly. Around that time, probably. Well, that's when. It's a good question because. Ah, we're so sidetracked. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. What the heck, okay, right? Yes. <laughs> no, well, let's, let, 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 you know, the, the Torah, you know, according to, we read last week in the parasha, Oso Savod, there's a mitzvah of worshiping God. How do you worship God? Uh, it's with prayer. It's a mitzvah. One of the mitzvahs in the Torah is pray. How do you pray? What do you say? So, in the fourth century before the common era, a bunch of rabbis by the name of their name that they were named were the men of the great assembly, which is essentially the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is the central authority of the Jewish people, as it's like the kind of the Supreme Court, if you will, uh, founded by Moses, but it was the longest lasting uh, branch of, of Jewish leadership. Because Moses founds it, and it lasts all the way to the fourth century of the Common Era. So essentially it lasts for 1,700 years. Right? Both temples only last for 400 years and change a piece. Uh, obviously, the Davidic monarchy lasts only a couple hundred years. Um, you know, uh, the prophets last for what are you know, five hundred years maybe. Uh, the judges, sixteen judges, and then we have the Sanhedrin, and unbroken um, uh, throughout uh, all history till the fourth century of the Common Era. Uh, but they are the ones who, in the 
fourth century before the Common Era, on the leadership of Ezra, they expand a little bit from 71 to 120 members. And by the way, the modern day Knesset, comprised of 120 members, is modeled after the 120 members of the Anche Knesset Hagdola, men of the Great Assembly. Knesset means assembly. Uh, that's why it's 120 members. And they're the ones who tell us what prayer is. So what's the deal? What do you have 900 years from when the time Moses says, admits to pray every day, till when it's actually formalized? What do you pray? So what were they praying beforehand? Good question. Don't you think? I think so. Mm-hmm. Well, you, yes. I mean, uh, it's uh, like the mitzvot until they, they were formalized. Well, no, but all the other mitzvahs are formalized. Well, tzitzit. Uh, yeah, but, tzitzit, but, but there's no innovation that says what tzitzit is. It's the only mitzvah of its kind, really, that you say that there's a mitzvah to pray, and what it actually is, we only find from 900 years later. Is that a good question? I think so, right? Anyone here wants to venture an answer? So once again, the question, just to repeat. The Torah says, right, pray every day. Jewish tradition dates that about 3,300 years ago. Right? Come along in the Medellin Assembly, and they say, well, how do you pray? So they outline the prayer with a prayer book. Who wrote that? Men of the Great Assembly. Okay, so we have 900 years from when we're told pray every day to when we're told what to say every day. What happened in the interim? What, what were they doing? I'll give it a shot. Go ahead. They had the temple. <laughs> well, they, okay, so go ahead. So they would sacrifice animals and three times a year come and pray together. Yeah, okay. The would, would do everything for the people. He would they, they would so he's the, one who has the only one who has a, has a mitzvah to pray every day? Only according to the law? Yes, I think at the time of the temple, they, he would do everything for the people. Well, first of all, the temple only shows up 400 years after the permanent temple. Right? Solomon's temple is about 450 years after Moses. Long, long time after Moses. So it's not the temple. You always say maybe the tabernacle or the mishkan, which is the kind of the, the core of, the, of you know. Uh, but the, the, that means there was no prayer. So yes, the Talmud does mention that the three prayers are modeled after the three daily sacrifices. The morning, the afternoon, and the evening sacrifices. And the uh, patriarchs, right? Uh, and the, the Talmud says either this or that. The famous Talmud in, in, the, in the book of Brachos. Um, either Abraham established Shachris, and uh, Isaac established Mincha, and Jacob established Mike. Or it's, uh, right, but either way, there was still a mitzvah to pray for everyone. Booyah. That's the correct answer. That's the, that's the right answer, exactly. What does it mean to pray? Prayer means to talk to God. Well, what do you say to God? Whatever you want to say to God. In what language? In different terms. So when they say they pray to God, they. Exactly. It says that there's 10 lashanot of prayer. There's 10, there's 10 different verbs used to describe prayer. Why? Because we have a very nuanced approach to prayer. We're like. Uh, Eskimos and snow. Anyone ever heard of that? The Eskimos have nine or seven words to describe snow. That's us. It's just snow. You know, what are slush. They? I don't know what they are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, but we, uh, this is, you know, the heart. <laughs> it's a good, good trivia. One of the seven names of snow for Eskimos. But this is who we are as a nation. We are a nation that's close to God. How do we close? We're close to God. We're able to communicate with God. How do we communicate with God? By talking to Him. Well, what do you say? Whatever you want to say. In what language do you say it? Whatever language you want to say it. Right? When? Whenever. All times. At least every day. Right? How? How you would talk to your fellow. That's the mitzvah. That's what prayer is all about. And you know what? Today, unfortunately, well, so let, let, let's go back to the story. So what happened? 
the rabbis realize that people are doing it. They are doing it. Well, let's force them to do it. Come to the people of the Middle Assembly and say, oh, people aren't fulfilling their duty kind of in their own way. Well, let's formalize it. Let's canonize it. Let's establish a binding, uh, a binding uh, um, a text, a canon for what they ought to say. And then you know what? That now, now we're saying that because we're, we're kind of handcuffed into doing, what, doing the mitzvah. Uh, but does that mean that the, um, I guess the essential um, method of prayer uh, is scrapped? Of course not. You know, but I think today one of the drawbacks of prayer like we have today, post military assembly, is the fact that a lot of people say, oh, prayer? Well, when's that? When's that scheduled? Oh, that's for Saturday morning. And you know what? It's in the temple or in the synagogue or in the shul. And you know what? We've got to put on the funny clothing. And we've got to speak in the funny language. Right? It, but, but when you formalize it, yeah, it becomes formal. And that's unfortunate. And I always advise people to uh, get one of those little Bluetooths and make believe you're on the phone, but just talk to God. I was uh, recently <laughs> where was I? I was in the airport. I actually found no advice. I actually had to do the formal prayer. And I was in the airport. My flight's delayed. And what are you going to do, right? And it's... Um, the flight was delayed. Where, where was I? I was, in, I was in Toronto. I was flying, to New York, flying back to Houston. This was about two, two and a half weeks ago. And it's, you know, it's about time for a shkia, for sunset. you got to say mincha. you got to dar mincha, right? And I'm in a packed... Like, every, like there were, for whatever reason, they had put three separate flights all scheduled to leave at the same time. At the same gate, I don't know, it's Canadian logic, right? That's to do with the metric system or whatever. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm sitting there like, and so I, like I said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go pray, but what am I going to do? Stand in front of everyone and, you know, it looks weird. So I took my phone out and turned it on or whatever. I just went like this and put it in my face and started praying. Right? I could pray by heart. And then I finished praying and that's it. You know, I walk to the corner as if I'm talking the phone. Yeah, of course I'm worried. You already live with me. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was in Italy. Okay. And I was flying out of there and I, I said this prayer. There was actually a lot of Jews on my flight. Yeah, sometimes people... Sometimes it wasn't people, all of them, but there was quite a few of them. Sometimes people, like, uh, you have these flights across the Atlantic. So you have to kind of... The Shafras is a much more complicated prayer because you've got the Tefillin on and you've got the Patalit on and, you know, then... There was this two guys, two Chabad guys, who were arrested on an Alaska flight because they thought they were strapping bombs to their heads. <laughs> I'm not even joking because you got to put these straps on. And you see, you see these people with beards, you know, and with straps, and like they're going, they're huddling in a corner. What are you going to do, right? And this is Alaska. It's not like you're flying. It's not like you're flying to, to you know, to Israel or something like that. You see this every day. Yeah. I've, I've seen it in the parking lot. Oh yeah. I've, Whatever. So I, what I just, I just put the. I, I usually, you know, I've prayed plenty of times with the Talos in like the airport. A lot more people on flights. So <laughs> That's true. Probably least you have to worry about. Uh, <laughs> but either way. My dad was in an airplane and a couple of Hasidim. Yeah. Went to see him in the morning. Davin, Davin. I love, I love Oh yeah. I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. You don't tell you why. Because what happens? You want to make a minion on a plane. And planes were designed to be very small. You know why? Because it saves on fuel. And the number one goal of the airline industry is 
to not spend money on fuel because that's their biggest expense. That decides if they make any money. You make a really narrow plane, a little cylinder. That's why you go to some plane, like these Embraers and Bombardiers or whatever they call them, and you're six foot one, <coughs> perhaps, and you cannot, you cannot stand, you cannot extend fully because you will bump your head. And the bathroom, you have to contort yourself like a question mark to fit in. Now, the problem is, is that you have the Jews who really want to pray and work with minion, right? Uh, but what do they do? Where, where, where are they going to go? This is not a really, you can't just go like to the, uh, the chapel or the USO or whatever they call it, the USO room. There's no extra room. So they just huddle around places and other people like want to go to the bathroom and they see a bunch of like what they would probably see as really bearded, <laughs> strange-looking men, congregating. Men in black with <laughs> speaking a weird language. Whatever. Yeah. And, like, and it's, and it's not, you know, we don't want people to be inconvenienced by our religion. It's not a good thing for us. It's not a Kedusha Shem. You know, it's not. Um, that's why I know a lot of very, very venerated and respected rabbis that would never miss a minion uh, on terra firma. But when they're in the air... Therefore, means land. Uh, but when they're in the air, they, if they want to dive down, they don't see to not inconvenience everyone. Like you have those, like uh, these alal flies, and they think the Jews think that they own the place, right? Well, yes, they technically do, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have like it's four thirty in the morning, and some guy wants to sleep. Who knows what time zone people are in? And then the guys are saying, "Daven in, daven in." You know, let's let's make a minion. And I said, "Is that really what's right to do? You know, we're supposed to have a minion. Well, is that?" Is that really? I don't know. It's an open question. I'm not trying to indict anyone. I'm saying, me personally, I don't, I don't, I don't participate in minions on planes. Um, the question is, how do you really tell? Like, thirsty. I'm sure it's been done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's been done. Uh, either way, so uh, back to the point that I was mentioning: uh, that uh, one of the drawbacks of having formalized prayer is that we assume, quite naturally, that that's what prayer is all about. Prayer is. Going to a synagogue, right? schmoozing with your friends first, right? Try, putting on funny clothing, speaking speaking a very foreign language that's, you know, this ancient Semitic language we call Hebrew. The most of us, or some of us at least, have no idea what we're saying, uh, and participating in some service that I guess was formalized twenty five hundred years ago, you know, more or less. Is that really what it's, what it's all about? Is that, what pray, is that what we're relegated to? Is that what, you know, one of these core elements of Jewish life, which is communicating with God, is that really what it's all about? No. Absolutely not. But, but, and the answer to it is that we have to find a way to not lose sight of what prayer really is all about, and that's talking to God. So I, I have advised people that it's better for you to not ever step foot in the synagogue. And don't ever wear a talit. Right? But pray. You don't need a talit to pray. Like, all you need is, is you, you know, your thoughts, and you don't need a lot of time for it. When you're walking from your cubicle to the water cooler, may that be a proverbial water cooler or whatever kind of water cooler you, right, you have some time to talk to God. You know? And there's no reason why we should be talking to God a hundred times a day. No reason why. Why not, right? You're walking from here to there, talk to God. Say, I'm about to walk into some... Some guy's house, Dana. Oh gosh, I'm gonna give a class, and what if I mess up? God help me! God help me that I just don't give a good class, right? Clearly, wasn't accepting the prayer, but <laughs> no. But like that's that's a good kind. Of, that means your God's involved in your life. Prayer means that you're inviting, so to speak, God into your life, and you're also offloading your problems into God. Anytime you have a problem, 
your kid is cranky up in the middle of the night with fever. I'm sure a lot of people have experienced that, right? Or you have a, you have, you have a challenging phone call you need to make in, in your professional life, right? Get God involved. Why does it have to be only in your head? Why can you? If your dad was a billionaire, well, maybe he is, maybe he is. For most people, right? If your dad was a billionaire, would you not try to utilize his connections to try to advance your life? Of course you wouldn't. Because your dad is God. We say a vino king. We call we call the Almighty God, Creator of Heaven and Earth. We call him our Father. Why would we not say, "Hey, I have some important phone call you need to make. Maybe help me with this." Right? Why? It's silly, right? Because we have disconnected what prayer is really all about. As a result of it being formalized, David, you were saying something. Oh, I was going to say that I, I fully agree with you. I mean, uh, it doesn't matter. Encourage every one of you, to, if you haven't tried it, to try it. Talk to God in your car when no one's listening. Especially when you're traveling. I know what it was. I Either way, uh, let's get back to uh, uh, the Shema. So I want to give you guys a, 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 some more of my thoughts on the issue before we actually dig into the actual text. Um, the Chafetz Chaim, remember we talked about the Chafetz Chaim? Uh, it was, I guess, three weeks ago we spoke about Lashon Hara. It wasn't your house. Hmm? It wasn't your house, I believe. Mm-hmm. Lashon Hara, we spoke about Lashon Hara. That's what you're talking about. Right? Lashon Hara? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so he uh, said as follows. He gave a, a parable, example, an analogy about the sh- about well the Shema. He says that there was this guy who had this uh, very complex uh, factory. A lot of dials and levers or levers and complicated machinery, and and he has this apprentice, and he's going to, and the and the boss is going on vacation for three months, and he tells the apprentice, "Listen, I want you to make sure that you don't screw it up while I'm out." And he gives him the instructions. Give you the detailed instructions. I said, oh, these instructions are so important. I want you to write them all down and put them on every doorpost. So whenever you, whenever, every time you'll just see it, you put them on your doorpost. I want you to make the contraption that you basically bound it to your skull and your arms. And I want you to say it every day to clear in the morning and night. Don't screw up the instructions. That's what he says. That's, 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 that's what it's all about. God here is giving us keys to the world. Remember, this is our world. We are the ones who are deciding what happens. Tikkun Olam, which is the Jewish mission, is in our hands. If we don't do it, it won't get done. God's entrusting us with this factor. And he says, These are, there's instructions how to make sure that this thing works. And they're really important when you put them in every doorpost. Every time you walk through a doorpost, which is thousands of times a day, perhaps, I don't know, you know if you're more uh, sedentary, then maybe it's less, but... It's it potentially hundreds of times a day. 
hundreds. Yeah. Say it in the morning. Say it at night. Say the Shema. Right. Wrap the fill into your head. Put it next to your heart. That's what it's doing. He's telling us, don't screw up the factory. That you know, that's what the Shema is about. The Shema is the declaration of the instructions that we are given to make sure that the world works, to make sure that the world comes to its completion, that we're able to achieve what it is that is our destiny and our mission to achieve. And I have a, a little modern update to this parable. Back to the airplanes. Uh, so uh, the most fr- maybe well, a lot of frustrating things about your air travel today. Um, I think probably the most frustrating is that those ten minutes. Um, for those of us sitting in the economy, uh, waiting for everyone else to, you know, you know, <laughs> you're taxiing and you finally get to your gate, and then, like, the plane kind of settles to like, you know, it kind of exhales, and then everyone like quickly up and getting their stuff and then waiting, and you wait for like ten minutes for all the fancy people leave, and then everyone else shuffles, and you kind of are always tempted with like how do I get in front of everyone to leave this cylinder that's uh, been my home for they're not fancy people it's they're people patience. that have no life that travel every other week <laughs> hey, sometimes the company pays for those seats yeah but they, they do glare <laughs> they do sometimes you know they're the, they're first they, well, they're pampered you know it's just oh, they, they didn't pay more yeah well, <laughs> yeah okay whatever not it ain't worth it. You ain't paying for that yourself. Believe me, I've looked at those seats. <laughs> uh, so, um, but at the beginning of the flight, there's these announcements that I'm sure all of us have heard them dozens of times, right? Do not tamper with, disable, or destroy the smoke detectors, or like what to do in case, what to do in case uh, there's a landing on water. I sat by the exit seat a few times, like, you know, instructions in case we have to land all I want you to do is pull the lever take the door in and then throw it out no problem I'll do it as long as I don't have anyone sitting there like you know like to me like I have four more inches of space I'll accept anything um, but uh, you know and to us it's like yes in the unlikely event that we're not really landing on water it's not really happening you know we all know that but you know we go through every day and we have to suffer this is one of the rituals of, of, of modern life is that you have to kind of suffer through these repetition of all these instructions right what else is there? Oh, whenever you travel with kids, you know, a bunch of little kids. So, first you put your mask on, and then you put the mask on the kids. I guess because otherwise, the parent obviously trying to save the kid, and then they're deprived of oxygen, and they no one ends up giving them the mask. That's what I assume the reason why. Either way, there's this, the, you know, there's these these uh, 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 these list these list of credos that are announced to everyone before the flight. Now, I want to ask you guys a question. I don't like those announcements, but Assuming we were in control, let's assume that we had the ability to just do away with it. Would any one of us responsibly do away with it or not? Why not? Because it's, it's yes, it, the odds of it happening are incredibly slim. Has anyone ever been on an airplane that lost oxygen? You know, it's very, very unlikely. I would assume it's less than one of every 10,000, you know, something like that. 10,000, 20,000. Landing on water, those things almost never happen. People don't smoke on airplanes. People don't smoke anywhere anymore. Um, well, I guess some people do, but you really want someone going to tamper with, disable, or destroy. Okay, but if it does happen, it's a bad thing or whatever. You know, that's. I think we could all agree that if we were in charge, we wouldn't want to get rid of it. But well, I would. You would. Okay, maybe it you would. Time. 
You say, but if I own the company and makes the insurance payments cheaper, I keep them. That's what I do. That's probably what I do. Yeah, but you're taxing anyway. You got time. Free time. Well, yeah, there is time, and that's usually when they do it. But the reason they really do it for insurance purposes. Well, like federal law. I think it might be federal law. Federal law prohibits them from the same. Either way. Like Let me ask you a question. Well, there's more stuff that's against federal law, but they don't talk about it. Well, it's not going to apply to the insurance properties and it won't rise costs. Maybe. They say, you can't have a gun on a plane. It's illegal. They don't say why. It doesn't matter. They can get it through TSA. Yeah, actually, you can. You actually can. They don't say. So, let me ask you guys a question. Let's imagine... Let's imagine that every single airplane that ever went into the sky landed in water. Every single airplane went into the sky lands in water. And every single time you're on the plane, the cabin loses the, the cabin uh, loses its oxygen, right? Every time you're on the plane? Every time you're on the plane. Okay. Every, every, every. Then would anyone in their right mind say we shouldn't say this? We shouldn't make those announcements? Even Dennis, even if doesn't, even if in our life and you know the kind of air travel we have today we would do away with it but if it happened every single time we would say ten times over right no. it's boring landing on water and you, you, you could live or die if, how, you know, how well you fulfill these instructions I think the Shema the Shema is our preparation for what life is going to bring and life will invariably bring these situations we got to know what to do Shema is our declaration we do in the morning before our flight so to speak which is what we're going to tackle that day. And that is going to be a little, you know, microcosm of what life is really about. And that is engaging in this arena that the Almighty created for us. And it's an arena full of pitfalls by design. And that these things will happen. Every time we kind of take off on this plane, we're going to have to deal with eventualities. We're going to have to deal with landing a water or, you know, whatever other... Obstacles the Almighty has planted for us. We say the Shema because we are preparing for that flight. Go ahead. If, well, then why don't oh, people Dennis, do it? Do let's it start off. Way. That was an amazing parable. What? It's an amazing parable. Start off like that. Okay. <laughs> that was an amazing parable. Thank you. But, <laughs> when people, if people, then why do people do not say the prayers before they start off today? I don't know. I think maybe people don't realize this. If people knew that the plane was going to walk, land in water, do you not think that they would automatically learn precautions they need to take to, for this? Ahead of time. Yes. They would listen. I'd rather. Well, uh, well I, I, I would. <laughs> but isn't well, this a lot more dangerous? I, I will tell you. I'll tell you the answer. I'll tell you the answer. The answer is like this is that we go through life not realizing necessarily. That we're landing on water. Why, not? Why is that? Because our bodies, quote unquote, in the paradigm of the body and soul relationship, uh, our body is of uh, foremost uh, importance in our consciousness, while our soul is of <clears throat> lesser importance. Why? That's just that's just the model. Because otherwise, the free will uh, paradigm wouldn't work. Well, that was when you're born. It's fifty-fifty. Well, no, no. Well, the body is more. Define born and define 50-50. Absolutely not. That, that's the correct answer. I have lots so of sources for this also. No, no, the, so the, the, the body is overwhelmingly uh, dominating okay. the soul. Okay. And I'll tell you why. That Give makes me sense. Here's no, a simple fine. answer. You don't, Believe you, me, I can look it up tomorrow. 
Yes. You have um, uh, if you if you don't eat food for two days or you don't drink water for two days, no, you'll I die. But same with uh, spiritually. But if you like, don't study Torah for a month or a year, you're you'll be fine. No, no, you're still spiritually. Spiritually, you're dead. But how yes. close is that to your consciousness? That's very different. But if yes. nobody studies Torah for a single second, that's true. That's true because if you pull the plug, the spiritual plug in the world, you can remember that. You can call that. That's right. In the twenty-three reasons why we study Torah, right? <laughs> That's right. Twenty-three. Yeah, we came up with twenty-three. We gave uh, for those of y'all who haven't been there. Uh, we went through. We had three different uh, discussions <laughs> on twenty-three reasons why we study Torah, and one of them was the fact that if we didn't study Torah, uh, the world would just cease to exist. Go ahead. And your example with the airport instructions. Yes. If I actually had to do that, I wouldn't know how. Like open up the door or whatever, you, whatever they tell you. The emergency. Do you listen to the instructions? Or you would. Oh, well, you would. What? So, if you had to open up that exit door on the airplane, your first time, do you think you're going to be able to do it? Hey, this is great. I know how to do it. Blah blah blah. No. Yeah, but so, the reason why not? Because I probably didn't pay too much attention to the instructions. Because well, to me, it was such a distant, implausible. Uh, um, Not only that, you never practiced. You never did it before. You probably can. You can. You, yeah, you I think it's just a lift yeah. and has like you, you will be able to it. It's the sign that it's complicated. I, I, I don't know. Either way, you're making that analogy to Shema. Yes. Saying you're saying it, getting preparation, but you're with it's just like the exit sign. Whereas you're just hearing it, but hey, I don't know how to do that exit sign. Yeah, so that's. Uh, that's where mindfulness comes in. If, you're, if you're not you, mindful you're about seeing, it, I, I could probably say the Shema. You can some of the heat, you know, attention. I could probably say the Shema. Even the mask. I could probably say the Shema. Have you ever tried, actually? Put I mean, mask. yeah. yeah. I, I put on a mask before. It's not that straightforward. <laughs> not an airline mask. I put on for the, for the space shuttle, for the space scene. Oh, when you went to the ISS. Yeah, when I went to ISS, I was trained for emergency. No, hold on. But on the map, it's not straightforward. It definitely was not. If I was in an emergency, I would not have put that mask on and be like, oh, okay, this is how it works, and blah, blah, blah. So is the moral here, don't sit near you guys on the exit road? If I see you on the exit road, I'm asking for you. If I see any of them in the exit road, I say, I'm out of this plane. The moral of the story is Ben 1.0 should be a responsible citizen and not sit on the exit road. Could he ask you, are you capable of... Yes. So, yeah. um, I can't you know, know. It'll take me a few minutes over here. You know? <laughs> That's too long. That's too long. Can you ask that if you don't feel capable, please tell your flight attendant? Yes. Yeah, but I want my four inches. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think you bring a very crucial point. And that is that, yes, while the Shema is essentially life-saving instructions, it is still possible to say them and not be mindful of them and therefore not have them affect you in any way. I, I tell you, I could, there's 248 words in Shema, by the way. And who here, does that number ring a bell to anyone? 248? Anybody? Yeah. That's the number of negative or positive? That's right. The number of positive commandments in the Torah, 248. And additionally, the number of limbs in, uh, in a human body is 248 limbs. Uh, the idea of the Shema is that it's a you know, to- total completion of perfection would be if you incorporate the laws of Shema. You, you have all 248 limbs there. But anyway, I could say the 248 words of Shema probably in 12 seconds. I, I could do it. Just 
Is that meaningful? Is that mindful? Is that impactful? Is that life-changing? Is that really taking instructions and planning the day for the obstacles and the eventuality that are going to happen? No, of course not. So what does that mean? That means is that to actually maximize and actualize the power of the Shema, you have to pay attention. You have to say it slowly and thoughtfully and mindfully. Well, I think you can just say the first sentence slowly and mindfully and then the object. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and to me, this was a bit, you know, this to me was one of the big takeaways is that Shema has so much to offer for us as Jews. Uh, and especially people that have an interest to Jewish philosophy and Jewish worldview and Jewish meaning and Jewish life and Jewish vibrancy. Uh, yet, unfortunately, at least in my case, all too often, you weren't actually maximizing, utilizing this opportunity. And that's very unfortunate. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's as if there was instructions that could be enormously beneficial for you, but you weren't actually following them or internalizing them. So maybe that's you know one of the takeaways of today's discussion, tonight's discussion, would be the fact that once we realize how important the Shema really is, how impactful and how you know the necessity of having it every day, etc., and putting it in the mezuzah. By the way, if you open the mezuzah, what do you, what's a, what's written inside the mezuzah? Who knows? The Shema. Made in China. Assembly in Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> um. <coughs> It says it says the uh, the two uh, the first two chapters of the Shema. Now the first two paragraphs of the Shema. If you open up a tefillin, this is, by the way something which is discouraged. Do not open tefillin. <laughs> you know what you're doing. You unkosher eyes. <laughs> uh, it's very easy to mess up. But let's say you were to open up your tefillin, and what would you find? Well, it depends which tefillin you open. Right? You know the tefillin of the arm, the tefillin of the head. The arm has one compartment and one and one parchment. On the par- parchment, you will find. Four sections of the Torah. Two of them from Exodus and two of them from Deuteronomy. The two of them from Deuteronomy are the first and second chapters of the Torah. So, I don't remember how I got here. <laughs> um, Smart. Yeah, I think, I think that the, 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 yeah, the. You had to with the mask. Yeah, you had to with the mask. <laughs> you need to shema yourself. You need what? Well, you need to pay, pay attention. You need to be mindful. Now, um, additionally, I want to say some other cool tidbits here. Know that um, the Talmud says that in the very first paragraph of the Shema, you find the Ten Commandments. Now, what would the Ten Commandments have to do with the Shema? <coughs> it doesn't seem to really have much overlap. The Ten Commandments are Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai, on these tablets, and the Shema is the prayer we say every day, and the Tefillin. But the, the truth is, is that the Ten Commandments are indeed a microcosm of the entire Torah. And that's why it's so critical to have them separate, as if we kind of heard the entire Torah at Mount Sinai, a very, very highly concentrated version of it. And then the very first two of the Ten Commandments, right, everyone here is familiar, uh, we know, we read a few weeks ago, that the Jewish people originally started hearing the Ten Commandments from God. And they couldn't handle it. They come to Moses and say, Moses, this is a bad idea. Why don't you speak to us instead? We like it much better like that. So, uh, so who here knows after how many commandments did God hand over the reins to Moses? Anybody knows here? Three. Right? Or three? 
after the first two commandments and the third one, right. Moses takes over. So we have the Ten Commandments, the first two, the Jewish people hate from God. The Talmud says that they couldn't handle it. They died. They had to be brought back together and back to life. They died again. and they brought back to the, right? Why? Because these were people that were not designed or not at the level where prophecy was appropriate. Prophecy was, was not uh, a wavelength that they were able to be receptive of. So, so the question is, why is it important that they hear this from God? And it's so important that even if it means that even if it's if they're unworthy of prophecy, it's inorganic prophecy. It's, a, it's, it's one of the very few examples of, of prophecy that's not deserved. And we know uh, Maimonides probably gives us very easy instructions how to gain prophecy. Very simple. All we got to do is follow the instructions. Four or five simple instructions. You know what they are? You have to be uh, someone who does all the positive mitzvahs and refrains from all the negative mitzvahs. Okay, so far so good. You have to be a great scholar of all of Torah. You have to be someone of perfect character, not a single flaw. You have to be someone who is total isolation of, of mind, body, and, and, and soul to God. Nothing else matters. You do that, you have prophecy. Simple. Yeah, a piece of cake. Simple. Why didn't you tell me? <laughs> exactly. Simple <laughs> formula. All you got to do is that. Well, the Jewish people on Mount Sinai... The entire nation was, uh, was, was granted prophecy. Well, was the entire nation worthy of prophecy? Not necessarily. Why would they be worthy of prophecy? Right? Moses was, so he's able to handle it. Right? They weren't. They're not able to handle it. They died. Well, why would God want to give them this inorganic form of prophecy? And by the way, we have another example of someone uh, who's had uh, a prophecy that's undeserved. Balaam, exactly. Balaam. And what do we know about the, well, what's the postscript of the Jewish people at Mount Sinai and what's the postscript of Bilaam? They follow very similar patterns. Bilaam dies. Well, Bilaam dies, but first he tries to kill as many Jews as he possibly can. Right. I mean, Doesn't seem to be a very kind of spiritual, <laughs> spiritually centric uh, activity to say, you know, if I talk to God and God says, don't go curse the Jewish people, I'll do it anyhow and try to kill as many Jews as I can. And manages to, manages to take 24,000 Jews with them. <coughs> and the Jewish people, 40 days after they have prophecy in Mount Sinai, they do the golden calf. Clearly, not only is it inorganic, it's actually not beneficial. It's not beneficial for you to suddenly say, be told, oh, you're a prophet. That's not a good thing for you. Why? Because if it's something that you deserve, if it's organic growth, so to speak, well, then, it's, then it makes sense, and it's right, and it's appropriate. Otherwise, it's actually, not only it's not appropriate, it's deleterious. So why it's a question that Dana's asking is ever more so strong. Why did Jesus not have the first two commandments from God uh, himself? And the answer is, I'll reference a Marsha, one of the commentators, the 16th century commentary uh, uh, on the book of Makros. The book of Makros is one of the 63 books of the Mishnah, which deals with Makros. What does Makros mean? Makros means uh, judicial um, enforcement. So one of the uh, laws of, of uh, or in the section that talks about, uh, section of, of Jewish law that talks about uh, law and jurisprudence and, assi- and, 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 and assigning courts, etc., it talks about how the court actually meets out their enforcement, how do they enforce it. And one of the ways they did it is by Mako, which means they hit the guy. Right? They, they would have the ability, they have police power. But either way, at the end of that particular book, it talks about how... Uh, Various uh, Jewish leaders tried to uh, uh, crystallize Judaism, right? boil it down to its core fundamental principles. 
And famously, Habakkuk, Habakkuk came, uh, the great uh, prophet Habakkuk, and he came and said, there's only one thing, and that's faith. Either way, in there, the commentary of the Marsha, he says that the first two of the Ten Commandments are all the entire Torah put together. If you look at the first two of the Ten Commandments, it contains the entire 613 mitzvahs. How so? First commandment is, I am the Lord your God. Second commandment is, you have no other gods. Those two include all positive and all negative mitzvahs. When you do a mitzvah, why do you, you do a positive mitzvah. You, you, you put your tefillin on, you eat your matzah, right? You, you, you blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. You are doing something because God told you to do it. You are affirming commandment one. You withhold from doing something that God says don't do. You don't eat the pork because the, uh, the bacon, the aforementioned bacon, uh, because God says no. Okay, well, then you're not going against God. It's a fulfillment of the second commandment. Thus, at its at core, the first two and ten commandments really include everything. God wanted the Jewish people to hear everything, at least you know, at, at least in its concentrated form, from God Himself. Thus, the Jewish people can essentially say, "We heard the entire Torah from God. We didn't have to have any proxy, any emissary, any go between the form of Moses." That's the answer. And even though yes, it's not an ideal way, it's inorganic and maybe even. Uh, you know, injurious to the people, but we have to know that the Torah that we got, at least at its, you know, at the core, the core two uh, uh, founding principles of the Torah we got from God Himself. The Ten Commandments, well, the Ten Commandments are also a synthesis of the entire Torah on a, on a little bit more of a, uh, you know, of a more, uh, um, um, I guess, spread out, uh, broad uh, uh, principle. And we talk about the Shema, the Shema being this uh, declaration of Judaism. Well, that's going to include the entire Ten Commandments. So it says the Talmud and Rishami uh, that the, 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 in the very first chapter, very first paragraph of the Shema, we have the Ten Commandments. We could safely say that when we say the Shema, we are kind of really going through all that the Torah really expects of us. Everything in a very shortened uh, uh, format. Okay, so let's actually talk about the Shema <laughs> after a, an hour and 17-minute introduction. Uh, what does the Shema actually say? So um, I apologize. I was trying to print out little printouts of what the Shema, of the words of the Shema. Um, in, there's this, I think probably everyone has in life things that just absolutely confound them. And no matter what you do, they don't work or they don't acquiesce or submit themselves to your will no matter what, or you're never able to just conquer something. I don't know. For me, it's printers. No matter what I tried to do, it wouldn't print. It's an HP printer? It was a, yeah, it's a brother printer. Yeah, like, it's, it's, it's a problem. What? <laughs> HP was the... <laughs> oh, somebody works at HP? <laughs> oh. I like brother. They have Linux devices. Oh. HP doesn't. Oh, <laughs> All I know is that it has sleep and deep sleep. That's its two modes. <laughs> it's either sleeping or in deep sleep. And I'm, I'm trying. I want to print. I want to be ready. Either way, I don't know. I tried. I'm telling you. I said I sat there for I think 15 minutes trying to get the print. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, either way, so I apologize for that. You're the big stack. <laughs> <laughs> Ten times that you try to print 
trying to frame it. So I remember there was this joke in the Reader's Digest about this uh, uh, this intern at the company, and he sees the befuddled-looking CEO holding a document, you know, by the by the shredder. And the guy sees it. He doesn't know where to do. Where you know the complicated machinery. Uh, you don't know where to where to put it in. So, so the guy, so the guy tells him, hey, "Can I help you with that?" He says, "Yes, this is very, very important. I need your help." He says, "Sure." He shows him where to put it. He put it. In. He's like, "Okay." And as it's being swept in, the CS says, "I only need one copy of it." <laughs> That's the joke. Oops, exactly. Okay, so let's start with the first of the Ten Commandments. I'll, I have it written down here on my phone, and I'll read you what it says. This is from the Art Stroll translation. They did a. Uh, it's not a literal translation. It's a functional translation. Um, it's a very good one. Uh, and it says, let's start with the first sentence. Hear, O Israel, Hashem is our God, Hashem, the one and only. That's their translation of Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. So it starts off kind of, I think, very much in line with what we have been saying till now. Shema Yisrael means pay attention. Right? Wake up. You know, we're, we're about the same instructions. Uh, and this is Shema Yisrael. It's the Jewish people. You know, who, who, who is that? That's all of us. That's, that's, Israel is the, is the nation in its entirety, right? Because if, if, what we're, if what will proceed is something that's so essential to the Jewish mission, it makes a lot of sense to say Shema Yisrael. Uh, then it gets into problem territory. Hashem Elokeinu. Well, Hashem is our God. We are invoking two names of God. And this is actually a pattern throughout the entire Torah. Uh, that there is multiple, many names. In fact, this is just the two most common ones. But there are a lot of names that we call God. Now, why do we call God with different names? Are we referring to different entities? Is this a very important thing? Because if you uh, want to interpret the different names as being different entities, which typically you would do, you run into some problems, actually you run into some major problems <laughs> in Jewish theology, because we don't believe in God having different elements, or different entities, or different qualities, or you know, di- God is one, we say. So why are we giving different names? The answer is that, well, yeah, but it's not even kindness. So the way the way Yedor, I don't know if you realize how marvelously you explained it. <laughs> No. You didn't, right? Uh, it's not about the different qualities of God, but it's the different perceived qualities of God from, from our perspective. And that we can't say God, if you say God is angry, you are encroaching on one of the core beliefs of the Jewish people. And this is the first page of Maimonides. He says, God, right, you know, you cannot assign a certain quality to God because that flies in the face of the very definition of God. Uh, yet you open the Torah, we read a few weeks ago that God got angry at Moses. So God was angry. Well, so is he angry or is he not angry? The answer is that God is not angry. Essentially, well, from God's perspective, he is not angry. However, from Moses' perspective, God he perceives God as acting to him in a way that one typically uh, associates with anger. And that's a, that subtlety is a very important one. Uh, you know, God, the eyes of God are always watching Israel. We read that two weeks ago in the Parsha. God has eyes, really? Well, no. If you say God has eyes, you're saying God has parts. So God has 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 elements of a body. Uh, the idea of a God incarnate—that's not a Jewish idea. Decidedly so. 
one of the 13 principles of Maimonides, of the basic fundamental beliefs of Judaism, is that God has no parts and God is not a body. God is not, not associated in any way with like, like a body. So what does it mean, God has eyes? So this is the first, literally the first page of Maimonides, he deals with this question. And the answer that he says is, 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 is what you're saying, is that it's, it's a way of talking to us in a way that we understand. Um, but essentially, it's not a description of, of fact. Similarly, we talked about we, we talked about God is our king, or God is our uh, um, Hashem is our God. We are not describing different, uh, um, even facets of God. Rather, we're describing different uh, perceived um, behaviors of God. There's a quote that says, "We don't we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. So it's got to have that." And, that, and that's that's but this particular point is why theology is so confounding because at least Jewish theology because we're creating these two realms that have no overlap and we're giving definitions but inherent in the definition is the fact that we cannot understand it because we're from the other realm we have to use those words in that vantage point well yes but even the, the words don't even help us no. because they just tell us that we can't understand because they're describing the fact that we're talking about different realities. Which is why it's so appealing to say that, uh, uh, you know, to, to try to uh, anthropomorphize God, to try to make God finite because that is making it possible for us to understand it. Yeah, well, it, it, the Torah does that, in, you know, in a way, but that could be very much mis misunderstood for what it actually means. Either way, so we have uh, uh, the Almighty is uh, is our is our God and our King, and the Almighty is one. Now, can I ask a question? Go ahead. Elokinu. Yes. That's my Hebrew. That's not as good. That's good. Elokinu is Allah, right? That's right. So why isn't it saying Elohim Shelanu? Well, uh, you don't want to say their name, so you say Elokeinu, just to change the name. the I thought that was the part of the name, but you are not praying. Because you uh, of the Christian model of God is the actual word of Elohim. That's how I pronounce Elohim. Right? One of the words, like we said, describe God is that uh, it's, 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 in Hebrew it means uh, the plurality. It's a, it's, a, it's a term for plurality. Um, many Elohas would be an Elohim. And if we describe God as being multiple, well, there you go. Right? We just described uh, more than one entity. And then we have in the same sentence, God is one. So God's not multiple entities. So which one is it? So as to the, as to the nature of the word Elohim, uh, in Hebrew, it does actually not mean God. It actually does not mean God. Probably most of us are not saying that. Uh, what does the word Elohim mean? No one knows. Because that's not one of the forbidden words. That's true. But okay. conversely, we, we do use it to describe God. So... But the word Elohim means power, or powers. Are you guys have examples? Uh, judgment, but 
Yeah, yes, as, as well. Uh, but God tells Moses, Moses is hesitated, is hesitating, he doesn't want to go to Pharaoh. God tells him, you don't worry about it, I will make you an Elohim to Pharaoh. You will be to you'll be if you just read this, wait a minute, Moses is gonna be a god to Pharaoh? No. That says Moses is gonna be is gonna dominate Pharaoh, he's gonna have the power. Another example. Two people have a dispute. I say you owe me money. He says, no, you don't owe me money. We have a monetary dispute. We go to Elohim. What does that mean? You go to God? That means you go to the court. Right? court refer- the court is referenced as Elohim because it means power. Uh, or powers even. Powers that be. We describe God's total control and power. We use the term Elohim. Now I say Elohim because this is a reference to God and we don't say God's name. So therefore, when we're referring to God, we say Elohim, because we don't say God's name in vain. However, when we're referring to other powers, we can say Elohim, no problem. Make sense? So kind of define where the definition is and why we say it a little bit differently the way it's, it's pronounced. Right? But when we're actually saying it for its correct purpose, like when you're saying the Shema, you don't, you don't say Elohim, you say the He instead of the Kuf. Yeah, does that make sense here? Yeah, thank you. Okay, so I want you guys to... Look, maybe uh, in Torah scroll, if you have a chance, to actually look at this verse in Torah scroll, you'll find something very bizarre. In a very bizarre. Um, you look at it, and something's going to look wrong. What's that? Right. So there's two letters of the Shema that are bigger than the other letters. Every single Torah scroll you ever, you'll, you'll, you'll read has the same. It looks like it's a mistake, as if the guy wrote the, you know the bigger letters and went off went off line. But every single Torah scroll has that the ayin, the last letter of the word Shema, and the last word of Echad, the last of the six words of the first sentence, the Dalit is bigger. And that spells out the word Aid. And Aid means a witness. And the idea being is that this statement, this is a testimony. As Jews, we're getting up and we're declaring something. What are we declaring the most important principles of our religion, of our life, of our philosophy, of our theology? And in fact, as a nice callback, we will say that the first two of the Ten Commandments are included in the first sentence of the Shema. How so? We say, Hashem is our God. That's commandment number one. Hashem is one. There's only one. There's no other powers. Don't believe in any other, other gods. Well, there you go. Hashem, Hashem Echad. Essentially, the first sentence of the Shema, those six words, they include the first two of the Ten Commandments and by proxy they include the entire Torah. Thus, if you had to think of a really nice uh, uh, motto for the Jewish people that really incorporates everything, you would come up with the Shema. Actually, the Ayin and Dalet is for Einat and Banim, not you guys. Moshe wrote it as per the dictation of God. Go ahead. My apologies. No problem. The word of the 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 word of God, yes. Okay. The the Torah is the word of God, but he um, dictated to Moses in the way we would perceive it. The way we would perceive it means that you're saying. Because you said. Like we said, the eyes of God, exactly. Well, the attributes of God were. 
go ahead. Or yes. whatever. So I just find that I've heard that perspective. Yeah. Well, the Torah is given to the Jews. The but he knew how they would receive his actions towards us. God knew that. Yeah. Right. So that's that. why he wrote it in that format. Yeah. It's presented to us. There's a famous line that's uh, said many times in, in Jewish literature: "Lo nitna Torah malachesharis." Torah was not given to the angels. If the Torah was given to the angels, who knows what it would have been written to them. This is written to us. It was given to us. And therefore it's written for us. It's optimized. It's optimized. Optimized. And this is the, the 3.0 version, right? It's perfectly designed for humans. Well, it's, it's the Torah optimized for humans, but humans are optimized for the Torah. I would say both of them are probably true because... It's a good point because... Well, God... Exactly. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, either way, <laughs> supremely optimized. Uh, uh, to uh, so therefore, yes, it's written for us. You know, in fact, this is great, great Talmud. We heard that together. What? We studied Talmud. We studied Talmud together. I, I don't think we got up there. We might have not, not gotten up there. So Moses goes up to heaven, and there's angels there. By the way, how does, how does Moses go up to heaven? How did he? How did he not eat? Anyone has any idea how to answer that question? We read it a few weeks ago in the Parsha. Moses goes up and he doesn't eat for four days and 40 nights. If we don't eat for four days and 40 nights, we die. Right? Why? Because we have a body. Moses goes up. Moses has a body as well. Moses has a body. He goes up and he doesn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. This is Rick for 40 days and 40 nights. Hasn't that died? Is that a question? Or is that like a silly question? Well, God's there. God kind of infused a new life. Maybe that's why the simple science is. Probably he didn't eat because his Swedish mama was not very clean. <laughs> <laughs> eat your veggies, huh? Eat your Wheaties. Is that, a, is that a good question, guys? Is that a bad question or a good question? What do you guys think? It's a good question, right? Or you can th- but there's an easy answer. Say, well, Moses is a prophet, and he, Moses communicating directly with God, and pff, who needs food? You know? I, I think that's probably a legitimate answer, you know? But that's a rebuffing of the question. I think that it's possible. Probably you know, throw it out over here, guys. Um, I already resigned that we're not going to finish what I had prepared. <laughs> so we just started. <laughs> I still have a lot more to say about this. We'll do part two next week. Yeah, maybe <laughs> we'll do part two next week. It's not a bad idea. So um, we spoke about prophecies. We said there's 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 the organic form of prophecy and there's the inorganic form of prophecy. What happens if if God were to speak to any one of us? What would happen to us? Anyone knows? We die. Why? Because our body is entirely physical, and therefore it has absolutely no overlap with the other realm, which is God. So therefore, God is communicating, and it's 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 not. It's like you put the plug in. Uh, to I'm trying to think of a nice electrical. Like you plug the plug in. There's too much amperage. Uh, to the socket, there's too much amperage, and just everything just explodes. It's not designed to have that kind of interface. <laughs> he was the future. Yeah, he was the future. <laughs> we got a lot, nice, a lot of yeah. analogies to that. Huh? <laughs> so, God speaks to us. We die. Why? Because we are primarily physical, and therefore God is entirely spiritual, and the spiritual and physical do not mesh really well. Moses is a prophet. Well, what does a prophet do? A prophet is able to change that balance of body soul. 
So it's more soul, less body, and to the degree which someone is able to expose their soul and minimize their body, they're essentially opening up in line of communication with God. That's why it's very natural, it's organic. It's not like it's something, oh, you earned it, let's, let's, let's give you the prize. It's actually, you create the receptacles to have communication with God by exposing your soul and mitigating and attenuating and limiting your body. And if your body, to the degree that your body is not a factor, well, then your soul is entirely dominating you. That's what's controlled. That's your consciousness. That's who you are. And therefore, well, the soul can very naturally have a, have a interface with God. That's why prophecy is not something that you just get because you deserve it. You get it because you build it. Right? If you build, oh, no. I'm not going that way. Uh, sorry. Scratch that for the record, right? Um, but it, it, it's, it's kind of the natural progression of someone exposing their soul, limiting their body, and therefore they are creating the conduit to, to connect to God and to have prophecy. That's why it's a formula. All you got to do is follow the formula and you, you got the prophecy. Now, Moses is someone who perfected the formula. In fact, we find that Maimonides recounts four differences between Moses' prophecy and everyone else's prophecy. Everyone else's prophecy is the middle of the night. Moses is the middle of the day. Why? Because so everyone. So case that is, I'm sorry, is that God that address directly Moses? I'm sorry. Because uh, we've read in the Torah that God, at one point, also addressed directly a non-Jew. Bilam. That's yeah, right. That is. That's a very good question. Not, she's not as ready as Moses was. And we, we we even mentioned that the the Talmud even asked why did Bilam have prophecy? It's a very good question. It's another example of inorganic prophecy. That and the Jewish people. I uh, gave an entire lecture on this issue. It's very interesting because they're juxtaposed to each other in the Torah. Uh, the Jewish people sinning right after they got prophecy and Bilam with his enormous sins, enormous egregious sins right after his prophecy. Very interesting. Uh, but Moses' prophecy is in the middle of the day. So is Abraham. No. Abraham comes that later. Uh, when the strangers well, come. It's the middle of the day. But when he's sacrificing. It's all Middle day means when I say middle day means that he's a, he's a, he's awake. Moses is awake and alert, as opposed to the middle of the night in a, in a dream. No, I'm saying Abraham was awake. Well, Abraham after, after his circumcision. Yeah, I think that's he was true. Pretty awake. But when the prophecy, <laughs> when the prophecy, no, you you bring up a good point. But when the prophecy actually sent upon Abraham, he is in the state of what we would call sleep or slumber. No, who's the exit of the tent? And then when the prophecy came, that's the whole prophecy. You have to read you have to read He describes, describes what happens when the altar when he's about to sacrifice his son. That's in the middle of Well, that's also that remember, what does that say? Because that talks about angels. Malachi. Malachi It's not clear if that's prophecy or that's some degree of prophecy. You're you're asking good questions. Look look at the money next time we meet. That's what we look at the money because he tells the differences. One of the thirteen principles he said. I believe with perfect faith that Moshe was the baby. Yes. We have to believe with perfect faith, right? When he says these three Right, so, and, and um, what distinguishes Moses' prophecy, he brings us four different things. He said, Moses is while he's awake and alert. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is in the middle of the night while they're in this subconscious state, so to speak. Um, Moses is direct communication. Everyone else is in the form of imagery. Um, so, as opposed to Moshe is face-to-face, so to speak direct communication. Uh, everyone else gets scared and terrified and starts shaking and Moses is perfectly calm and 
collected. And lastly, is that everyone else has to wait for God to come to them, while Moses can go to God. Those are the four differences that distinguish Moses' prophecy from everyone else's prophecy, according to Maimonides, in the, I think it's the uh, eighth chapter of, of Yusodal Torah, of the foundations of the Torah. It's the very first laws that he discusses in his magnum opus, the Avalaka, the Mishnah Torah, in the Book of Magi. So we'll, 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 you gotta trust me for this. He's already looking at the phone. You got it? Did you check it up? Is it there? Oh, sorry. I thought you were verifying. What Posting I was pictures on Facebook. Sorry. Yes, go ahead, Lenny. I would like to interject a few ideas go ahead. about the structure of this discussion. Yes. Uh, what made me think about it was the discussion and a few comments you had about memorization of the Vidui prayer. Yes. Yes. And I would venture to say that a large majority of the attendees at this discussion today, tonight, do not have the many facets of the Shema prayer identified in their mind, mm -hmm. or certainly memorized. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that if we were to discuss the many attributes meetings of the Shema prayer, prayer that we should have had recited by in some manner the actual literal uh, description of the many facets of the Shema prayer. Or you're saying we should say the Shema? And it would make the entire discussion much more meaningful and lasting. Mm -hmm. I sat here with my hearing worthwhile memorizing uh, and then dropping your voice to the point where I couldn't hear it and therefore missed out on a very high percentage of the meaning of what was being discussed and so I, I believe that the recitation by the leader of the discussion of the actual prayer would make it all more uh, that's a very good idea. And I know, I know you mentioned before that sometimes I lower my voice. Uh, I think apparently it was a, a tactic that uh, they taught us in public speaking that you're supposed to have like your pitch and you're supposed to go up and down and then you're here. And then you're up here and you're outside and then, and then you talk over here. So, but I know it can be very frustrating and I apologize. Uh -huh. And I have zero intention of disincluding anyone from the discussion. Um, and yeah, like I and I did mention that I did want to bring an actual printout of the Shema, and I think that would have uh, uh, enhanced the discussion greatly. Uh, I think that I'm actually going to follow uh, Bonnie's advice and uh, do a part two because we didn't really get that far in the Shema, uh, and I think that's a very good idea to do that. Uh, maybe we'll say the Shema together. It's a very, very uh, powerful idea. Uh, and my hopes are that 
it's it's you know if we know why we're saying the Shema and we know the meaning behind the Shema and we know the power of the Shema and we understand the impact that it can have on our lives in the Shema that it won't just be us reciting it once here uh, you know in in the in the context of a class but it's something that we use uh, throughout our lives um, whenever you know hopefully every day. Um, you know, we're told to say it in the morning and at night. Uh, we're clearly, uh, you know, the, the, the Torah is uh, almost hyperbolic about it, that the importance of the reciting of the Shema. So I do think that that's a, that that's, that that's a, a good point to bring. And you know what? I think it's, it's uh, I think I mentioned this in a previous discussion. Am I talking loudly enough? But I did mention that you know when you have these really nice discussions, uh, they could be impactful if you integrate them into your lives, and they could be very interesting, uh, but not so lasting if you don't integrate them into your lives. And I think the Shema is a great example of that, wherein if we listen and heed, so to speak, we Shema, we, we listen to what we're talking about, uh, we can actually utilize it as... Uh, a springboard for becoming better people, better Jews, people that are more clo- people that are more closely linked to the great missions, the great teachings of of the Jewish people, and uh, as presented in the Shema. I I know that there are many facets of the uh, science and, and technology of public speaking which involve the control of the uh, uh, temperature. I should do more research about that. Maybe. And I, I, I really apologize. I was assure you it's not my intention. Uh, okay, so um, where were we? Oh, how did Moshe not eat? That's what we're talking about. So Moshe is this great prophet, and he is. Um, Moshe is uh, a, a transcendental prophet, uh, and the reason behind that is that Moshe is the one um, who, more than any one of his peers, the prophets, uh, he is able to uh, isolate his soul, so to speak, and minimize the effect of his body. And in fact, we're told that Moses... Moses' face was as bright as the sun. I might have gone through this exercise with you guys once before. Moses' face is as bright as the sun, and we find that the soul, if you were able to look at it, it would look like the sun. So my theory is that just like if you were to isolate the soul, the soul does not need any food, Moses is at the level in this body-soul paradigm that it's as if his, the soul is dominant and the body is just there and the body doesn't need to be tended to in any way. 
perhaps that's why Moses does not need to eat nor drink. Because at this point of prophecy that he's having here with God, these four, you know, he is totally soulful, and therefore the body is, is just dragged along with the soul and does not need to be tended to. Anyway, that's uh, that's uh, my thoughts on that. So either way, I want to share with you guys something that Maimonides writes about the Shema. Maimonides writes that this is in the book of Guide to the Perplexed. We know Maimonides wrote a lot of great, great and wonderful books. Uh, he wrote a book called Guide to the Perplexed, uh, which is essentially Judaism in the lens of Greek philosophy. <clears throat> so the prevailing philosophy of the time is, is Greek philosophy and was seen by many to be at odds with the Torah. And Maimonides does the work of writing a book that shows Judaism in the light of, or how would someone who is uh, enveloped by Greek philosophy, how would they understand and rationalize uh, the Torah? Uh, in it, he writes, he says, when you study the Shema, you spend many, many years on the first six words of the Shema. So I kind of get the feeling here, we're, we've been talking about the Shema, the first words of the Shema for about, like, I don't know, maybe an hour. And maybe we feel like, okay, we got the message, let's move on to the next verse. And then Amani says we have to spend many years studying the first six words of the Shema. What's there to study? Right? Hear, O Israel, uh, Hashem is our God, Hashem is one, fire tickets, they say in Yiddish. Move on. Well, what, else is the, what else is there? What is this many years of contemplation that we need to do in the Shema? Uh, if we understand the first words of the Shema, the first six words of the Shema as being essentially the first two of the Ten Commandments, thus by extension, the entire Torah put together, well then maybe if we're essentially going through the entire Torah, well, then it makes a lot of sense that there's room for, uh, for many years of, of, of contemplation and deliberation. I think that's a very fair argument, no? Well, if, he, if that's the argument, you would say your entire life. Uh, maybe. <laughs> a few years. Okay. Maybe. Right, you never stop learning, right? If, if, if you understand the entire Torah, then so that's Okay, so maybe there's something else here. Uh, so, I want to share with you guys just an insight. This is a nice takeaway insight, because like we haven't done the entire Shema, but we, we did talk about the first six words. And when we're saying this, we're making a declaration, but we're also standing testimony. And we're saying that I am getting up here, I hope right, I tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God, and I'm saying that I believe that God is our, you know, that Hashem is our God, Hashem is one. You're declaring that. We cover our eyes to concentrate. What are we doing? What is the nature of this declaration? Is it a belief that we, box that we check? It's something that we believe? Is it something that we actually live? Is it something that we feel? Is it really something that resonates within us. 
what would we look like if we really believed it and it really impacted us? How would we be if we really believed, if we had no doubt, if, if, if we lived by this principle? It wasn't just some sort of ideology, some idea that, yeah, of course I believe. I'm one of those atheists. Right? I believe, yeah, of course. This is the, this is the heartland of the world. This is the Bible Belt. Of course we believe. Is that really what the Shema is about? Is it about creating this you know, option? Do you believe? Do you not believe? Which one? Okay, I believe. Excellent. Move on. Or is it really taking God and making him a master over you? Making him your king? Submitting yourself to God. If God is really there, if it's really true, right? if God is really our, Hashem is really our God, if that is true, then everything that we do in our lives is dependent, contingent on God. Everything, we have to totally submit ourselves to him. Well, that's an entirely different story. It means my hands, my feet, my mind, my, my abilities, my qualities, my, my, uh, uh, my, my gifts, my resources, my, my, my life itself. Well, then it all, it, it all is submitted to God. My calculus. Everything. If that was really true. Now, that's an entirely different shema. It's not just about a belief that we have. It's a transformation in who we are. It is a, a testimony that we are declaring, and we're declaring it by ourselves, on ourselves. I am someone, here in Israel, we're, we're, we're the Jewish people. We believe that God is really there. Now, that implies things that we're going to be very uncomfortable with. There's a song that we believe. That's right. But I believe, right? What does that imply? It implies things that we're not going to be happy with. Right? It is going to, we're going to feel constricted. Because if I'm told, if I really believe that, and I'm really dedicated to that, my self-import, my self-worth, or not self-worth, but my importance is kind of downplayed a little bit. I am nothing more than someone who is dedicated towards this goal. And that is something that we're going to be hesitant to do. Doesn't Shemar has some, like, the meaning of, like, this uh, fearless and endear or something, like, this quality of that? Well, there's a lot of different meanings. Right. We spent many years in this. So that's, yes, like I said, it's more than just, um, you know, the world is as I want. There's, there's, there's like, that there's like, this, and, and, then, and then up to here, you can listen first, and then, and then but then here, and then do. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll give you an example of what you're saying. In, um, in the book of Genesis, we find a meeting between a father and a son. Uh, and a meeting that was highly anticipated by both the father and the son. Uh, why? Because the son was plucked away from his father at a very tender young age of 17. And until the child was 39, he did not meet his dad. His dad did not meet him. And obviously we're talking about Joseph and Jacob. So Jacob really loves Joseph and he gives him the special clothing and everything's wonderful. Joseph is kidnapped. We know the whole story. 22 years later, Joseph is the king in Egypt. All the events that transpired, of course. And then Jacob and Joseph meet. So there's a nuance in the verse that says that Joseph is crying when they met. 
obviously very emotional, Joseph is quoted. And the Midrash says something very just peculiar. What does it say? It says that Jacob wasn't crying. Why was Jacob not crying? You know, Jacob was someone who was so devastated by the loss of his, or the, uh, the perceived loss of his child, that he said, oh, I'm going to die, I'm going to go to hell. That's what he says, really. He says, I'd say, I'm over, I'm going to hell. That's what he says. And then he was so devastated, and no one could make him happy, and he was just miserable for 22 years. He finally gets to meet his child. You would think this is the most momentous, emotional event of his, of his life. Jo- Joseph is crying. And Jacob's not crying. So he says, why is, why is Jacob not crying? So it says that Jacob was saying the Shema. Jacob is saying the Shema. And the question is, okay, Jacob is saying the Shema. Joseph is not saying the Shema. Why is Jacob saying the Shema, not Joseph? If, it, if they're supposed to say Shema, they both should be saying the Shema. If it's not supposed to say Shema, then none of them should be saying Shema. Why is Jacob saying the Shema, not Joseph? So, we know <laughs> that uh, the, there's a special status of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? We know that Moses says to God, why do we say the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and not the God of Moses? Or the God of Joseph. Exactly. And there's something really special about the relationship that the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had with God that no one else replicated. And the way it's described in the Talmud is that the, the Avos, the forefathers, they are their markavta deshchina. They are the chariot of God. What does that mean? You know that the, uh, the president has, uh, you know, his uh, the big Cadillac always ready to go, and there's the Marine One and there's Air Force One, and it's always fueled and ready to go at a moment's notice. Similarly, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were always primed and ready for having God in their lives, right then, always, always aware, never for a second lost sight of that fact. And that's why it's the God of Abraham, because it's as if Abraham himself was a testament to God, because he was always in a state of absolute readiness. Isaac and Jacob. Jacob is about to meet his child. He's about to meet the child that he's missed for so long. He's been so devastated without. He's, you know, essentially it's the it's the transformative event of his life, where everything that he thought he had lost, he realizes that he still has. He recognizes that during this event, this reunion, he's going to be overwhelmed with emotions, quite naturally. He gets overwhelmed with emotions. What is he going to forget about? What is he going to lose sight of for even a second? God. And therefore, he's going to lose sight of the God of, God of Jacob. Suddenly, he's not the God of Jacob. Jacob is involved with anything with something else. In order to prevent that from happening, at the point of this meeting, he says the Shema. To reinforce this total presence and total readiness of, 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 of God, of being this chariot for God, and 
being ready to go, not to be overwhelmed by by this uh, by this uh, this interaction and making forget about God. So I think that uh, for us, you know, if we take this idea, this insight of just the first six words of the Shema, and uh, we already have something scheduled for next week uh, to move on to. Uh, uh, apparently, there's uh, those are six words. There's still two hundred and forty-two left, um, but. The Shema is when someone accepts upon themselves, the way it's described, accept upon themselves the burden, the yoke of God. Now why is it a burden? Because it's uncomfortable. Why is it a yoke? Because it's not pleasant. Why is it something that we have to kind of bear, we have to shoulder? Because it, it inhibits us. When we actually have kind of God the presence of God on us, right? It's a very, it's an uncomfortable situation to be in. And that's why it's not easy to say the Shema and really mean it. Because by saying the Shema, I'm saying, God, well, well what, what does that mean about, well, if, if, if God is really there, well, then what does it mean about me? What's my significance? It's, I'm insignificant. That's not something that's easy to do. Right? That exercise is something that you have to really contemplate for years and years. Yes, the, the insight of, of what we're saying in these six words is not so dramatic, but the implications of what it actually does, what it means for who I am as a human, that's something that's, that, that's an entire reframing of, of who I am as a human. And Rabbi, that's like, when was the presence of, of women acknowledged? Well, that's a good question. We spoke about Abraham, right? Abraham, God tells him that his wife Sarah was a greater prophetess than him. So when we say Abraham, we mean Abraham and Sarah are a, uh, uh, a, uh, a in, indivisible unit, of course. Uh, uh, other examples of where God tells, uh, God, uh, Sarah says, go kick, uh, kick Ishmael out. And Abraham says, Abraham says, what? I mean, I'm keeping my own son out of my house. So God tells him, yes, whatever Sarah says to you, you listen to. So when we, we talk about Abraham, uh, and Isaac and Jacob uh, as well, we are not disincluding their wives. Of course not. Sarah's prophecy happened during the day too. Well, during the day when I, when I, when I, when I made this right away. away. <laughs> How do you know it's right away? <laughs> why are you laughing? God said, why are you laughing? When she said she couldn't have kids. Well, who says she was awake? How do we know what the status of her, of, of her body was at the time? I'm sorry. We'll, we'll, we'll look at the sources. Okay. We have time to do this. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to, you, you're not, you're, it's like you're, no. I'm, you're picking on me as if, as if it's me. I'm just, I'm not thinking. <laughs> as if, uh, I was talking about Sarah, so it reminded me of that's all. Yeah, so, um, we'll look at the sources. Okay. Um, but yes, uh, most certainly, um, uh, the, uh, uh, great, uh, you know, the, Sarah was about 90 years old when she had the baby, Pretty, right? pretty remarkable, huh? There was this uh, woman in Israel who just had a baby at 65. So that's, I'm, I'm joking. It's a story. It's this past year. 65 years old. First child. Her first child. Her pregnancy, first child. Can you imagine? Nope. Only <laughs> 65. It's insane. Yeah. Um, uh, either way. Uh, uh, either way, I think for us, what's our takeaway from this week? Uh, it's going to be that the Shema is a lot. There's a lot there. It's something we're familiar with. It's a prayer that we've seen before. Maybe we know it. Maybe we don't. Either way, 
it is crucial, it is <coughs> essential, it is pivotal, it is fundamental, it is what describes who we are as a nation, uh, but it's also not easy. And, it's, and the, if, we, if we are to follow the instructions of Maimonides, we, we're told that there's years and years and years of work to actually maximize what it means. Why? Because it's not comfortable. It, it's, it's, it's putting us in a situation, this scenario, where we're submitting ourselves entirely to God. And what that actually means, we see the very next verse talks about martyrdom. What does martyrdom have to do with belief in God? Well, a natural extension of complete faith is giving up everything for God, even your life. Obviously, that is dramatically ahead of what we're used to thinking and feeling when we say the Shema. Uh, so there's a gap between understanding what, what, what we're talking about and actually integrating it into our life, and that's where we have years and years and years to work on it. Uh, but God willing, next week we will continue the Shema and see what else it has in store for us. Uh, I thank you all, and thank you again, Dana, for inviting us into your lovely home. And thank you everyone for coming. And I look forward to seeing you all next week to continue this wonderful subject. So, Friday, we'll have a Kamalat Shabbat. Uh, Coast crossing, right?